The following episode of Create the Village was produced in advance of the January 5, 2021 special election in Georgia, as well as events at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021. On this edition of Create the Village, people don't need to be fixed. That's the greatest fallacy about homelessness. What people need is support in navigating systems and barriers that contribute to homelessness, especially for black and brown people. My name is Egbert Perry. I'm the CEO and founder of The Integral Group, a real estate company that focuses on creating value in cities and rebuilding the fabric of communities. This is Create the Village, a podcast about the intersection of public policy and community development. Susan K. Thomas is president of the Melville Charitable Trust, where she oversees the trust's grant-making strategy, philanthropic partnerships, and administration. Susan has been instrumental in the creation of Funders for Housing and Opportunity, a national nonpartisan cross-sector funder collaborative focused on tackling the housing affordability crisis by supporting advocacy, narrative change work, and efforts to scale effective practices at the intersection of housing, health, economic mobility, and education. She holds a Master of Business Administration from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University and Bachelor of Science in Accounting from the University of Maryland. Susan, welcome. Hi, Egbert, and thank you for having me. Before we really get started, could you just take a moment uh, to describe the Melville Charitable Trust and the work that the trust does every day so that the audience can better understand and appreciate what you do every day? Uh, The Melville Charitable Trust was founded in 1990, and we had a single mandate, and that was to end homelessness. And as we grew, we recognized the deep connections between housing and homelessness and the need to more intentionally address the complex and interrelated issues that cause homelessness. So the trust has always been focused on systemic change rather than crisis response. So we wouldn't fund, say, a shelter. Uh, or a housing provider directly. We recognize that homelessness is the the symptom of failed systems, housing, healthcare, education, criminal justice, failed economic policies. Um, It's completely solvable. Homelessness is solvable, but it requires us as a country to examine and really think about and address the root causes of homelessness. So to that end, Uh, The trust is looking at um, root causes even harder um, and racial disparities as far as who experiences homelessness and why. Black Americans make up 13% of the U.S. population, but account for about 40% of all people living without a home. That's a huge disparity. Landlords file evictions against black and brown people, well, really black people, at twice the rate of white people. So given these disparities and in the wake of our country's very long overdue recognition of the role in race of, that race plays in just about every facet of American life, we felt it was very important to purposefully shift our work 
so that racial justice is prominent in all that we fund. In this way, we hope to support the needs of communities who bear the greatest burden of homelessness and housing instability. And that's extremely low income, black, indigenous, and people of color, what people are now coining as BIPOC. Because of the unique barriers facing BIPOC in our society and the unique needs associated with overcoming those barriers, we came to realize that if we can't end homelessness for BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, then we can't end it. All right, so that's a, obviously we know it's a complicated um, issue, has many tentacles, as, as you indicated. It seems sort of intuitive. So what's the greatest misunderstanding about homelessness in the country? And I'm curious how we compare to other industrialized and Western nations. Yeah. Uh, you know, unfortunately, homelessness isn't unique to America. Um, Habit Habitat for Humanity did a study in 2015 and found that 150 million people are experiencing homelessness around the world. Um, and 1.6 billion people, that's 20% of the world's population, has inadequate housing. So it's not unique to America. I think the causes, as you said, um, of homelessness are very complex. And so every country has its own political, economic um, history. Every country has its unique culture and the different ways it considers and governs its citizens. So the solutions really depend on a set of social and economic factors that, that vary from country to country. It would be great for us to understand what's unique about America and the American experience. So as the yeah. listeners hear it, they can sort of distill the differences, if you will. Sure. Um, think about our politics and our history. Right. You know, our country was founded on stolen land right. and it was built by stolen people. Mm -hmm. I mean, that sounds harsh, but it's the truth. And our political system, our policies and practices have all been designed really to ensure that those same people and anyone else who remotely looks like them um, face multiple barriers to success. And white poor people have been impacted by those policies and practices as well. Uh, the homeless is you know, it's treated like a, a separate demographic that suddenly popped up um, because they prefer to live on the street. That's what the urban myth is. Oh, they want to be homeless. No one prefers to live on the street. No one wants to be without a home. That's, <laughs> and you're, you're laughing and because it's ridiculous. Um, when I was growing up in the 70s, we didn't see people living on the streets. Um, if you did, it was, it was rare. And in the next two decades, though, several things happened. President Reagan was elected. And with his presidency, you saw the widening of the wealth gap, stemming from his trickle-down Reaganomic policies that are infamous. Um, we saw the propagation of the Southern strategy. And that dovetailed into the rise of the Republican Party and fiscal conservatism, quote-unquote, which is another name for we're gonna cut social programs that benefit black and brown people and people who are poor so they can't advance. That's code for social 
conservatism and I mean uh, uh, fiscal conservatism and that was all part of the southern strategy but Reagan also repealed President Carter's Mental Health Systems Act and a lot of people don't know that um, but that had a great impact on homelessness today. Uh, it resulted in the release of thousands of mental health patients from institutions without adequate supports put in place in community so that they could integrate back into community. Um, and then all that was followed then by the crack epidemic and the ensuing war on drugs. And so all those things were feeders for the homeless system and into the homeless system. Um, and you started to see more and more people living on the street. And the general public doesn't really connect those issues um, and policies and circumstances to uh, homelessness and the issue of homelessness. Um, they don't connect racialized policies. Uh, homelessness, the myth, is that it's the person's fault, that they personally failed. They made bad choices, they weren't fiscally responsible, they were lazy, so on. And so in the 90s, dealing with this new, fairly new phenomenon, um, policies were largely aimed at addressing the immediate needs of those in crisis. They need shelter, they need food, they need rehabilitation. Many had mental health and substance abuse issues. And so programs were focused on fixing the person. And that remains, it still remains. It's a philosophy across the field for many, but not for all. Um, when the housing bubble burst, the face of homelessness started to change. Many individuals and families became homeless due to loss of income, loss of their homes, um, lack of affordable housing as an alternative, a major health problem, uh, lack of affordable health care. And then we had other uh, reasons that have always been a part of homelessness. But those pervasive reasons um, really uh, moved us into another area um, in terms of how we respond to people experiencing homelessness. You know, rents were skyrocketing, um, wages were falling, remaining stagnant, they still remain stagnant. And so one medical emergency, one emergency, uh, could really destroy a family economically and, and, and move them into homelessness. People don't need to be fixed. That's the greatest fallacy about homelessness. What people need is, is support in navigating life circumstances, support in navigating systems and barriers that contribute to homelessness, especially for black and brown people um, who've been systematically excluded from housing and opportunity from wealth, quality education. And so by the early 2000s, people in the field started recognizing the need to fix systems rather than people. Um, and that people, they need a home. They don't need a program. <laughs> they need a home. <laughs> well, you know, you, you mentioned um, Reagan, and I am yeah. reminded that the amount of chaos caused broadly on the, up from a social front is really not fully understood by so many people because I think of my work in transforming public housing mm -hmm. and what people do not realize is that Reagan, the Reagan era ushered in public housing as housing of last resort. 
if you had AIDS, if you had mental health issues, if you had whatever, any issues, public housing was where you were supposed to go. So in effect, it took a system because public housing actually was not bad prior to that era. Um, It was serving its purpose as transitional housing. But then you woke up one day and it was, if you had a whole bunch of other issues that we, by the way, created, the place you go is the public housing. And that started a very steep decline in the quality of life in public housing. And we ended up within a couple of decades, it was just hell on earth and, and people really didn't understand or appreciate how steep the decline was over the preceding, say, 10 or 15 years after ushering in all of these policies. So That's exactly right. And, yeah. and if you think about it also, you know, public housing was created for white people. That's right. That's right. It, it was good housing. Yeah. Uh, and it was federally subsidized yeah. in the 40s. That's, that was the beginning of public housing. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly, as you said, when the demographics of who were in public housing changed, yeah. that's when it became bad. Yes. So, so there, clearly, um, you've concluded that homelessness is really a health issue. We should look at it as a health issue. And so just take a moment and speak to the emotional and psychological trauma that you think homelessness can cause and how your work has come to that conclusion, come to the realization that it is a health issue and not just a housing issue. Yeah, it, um, it is not just a housing issue. It's a health issue. It's an education issue. Um, it's a, it's a cross cutting uh, issue. And I think um, the, the psychological impact of that, I'll tell you a story. So when I was in Atlanta, and I worked at the mayor's office and I was uh, uh, working on a homelessness initiative for the city for him. And a woman came in and she found me somewhere in city hall. I don't know how she found me. And she said um, that she had a home. She had a job. um, She lost her job. uh, She had a help because of a health issue. Then her, um, bull- uh, the balloon on her mortgage came due. Um, she couldn't pay it. She lost her home. She and her daughter mo- had to move into her car. The school caught wind that her daughter was living in a car. So then rather than support her, they came and they took her daughter. Mm. So then in order to get any kind of housing. And she did that to protect her daughter. She didn't want her daughter who was 13 to be in a shelter. And so then uh, to get any type of assistance, when she went to programs, they were telling her, well, you have to have a mental health problem. So say you have a mental health problem. She said, I don't have a mental health problem. (laughs) These are my problems. And I, and I want my daughter back. That's my biggest problem. Well, over time, clearly, as I was talking to her, she did have a mental health problem. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I looked at her as a mom and as a black woman, and I said, I thought to myself, I would have a mental health problem mm-hmm. if I had gone through what she went through mm-hmm. and if someone had taken my daughter who I was trying to protect. 
So what psychological impact does it have? She then was judged on her behavior and acting out on that um, as being someone who was um, service resistant. <laughs> so see how the pattern goes? Well, and so I, I flew into, you know, Susan mode and like, who do I know? How can I get her into shelter now? How can I get her into housing? And she said, I don't want you to help me. She said, I need you to fix the system. Oh. That stuck with me, still yeah. sticks with me. Tall order. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, um, you, you published a piece and your opening sentence was, there is something fundamentally wrong with this country's priorities. And you, you went on to make a number of statements or observations um, you drew attention to the COVID debt toll. You criticized Congress for failing to blunt the economic impact of the pandemic that we're living through right now. You mentioned that one out of five black ho households do not have enough to eat. And you asked, what happened to the mandate to care for the least of these? So my question for you is this. What has been the response to your plea? And maybe another question, are you encouraged or discouraged by how it's been received? Yes, um, thank you. Uh, yes, you for... are encouraged and discouraged. <laughs> <laughs> um, encouraged, encouraged, I would say. Um, you know, during all of this, George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, the, the pandemic, I've been kind of silent. Uh, and, um, and a lot of people have been posting statements, um, very thoughtful statements. And I, I felt I didn't have anything to add that really hadn't been said, you know, so aptly before. But I guess, you know, when the Supreme Court process uh, came up, that's, that broke the dam. <laughs> that just broke the dam for me. I couldn't believe the audacity to put that nomination before millions of people's needs millions of people who are you know can't sleep at night have anxiety over you know how they're going to pay their bills how they're going to feed their children if they're going to get evicted and then justifying um that move and that focus as their moral obligation mm -hmm. um as an extension of their faith that was just uh to me a very grotesque contradiction and so I, I was less afraid of people's reaction, um, more so curious, because I felt it was time for me to tell the truth on that, at least what I, the truth as I saw it. And I didn't quite know what to expect. Um, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised, though. Shortly after our uh, director of communications tweeted it out, a couple um, of my colleagues very shortly after emailed me and, um, and said thank you. And that surprised me. I didn't expect a, a thank you for writing that. And they said that it was needed and, and really um, praised the piece. And so I thought, you know what? I'm gonna put it on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna broadcast it further. And you know, as a person of faith, if I can inspire even just one other person of faith to really think about and really dig into how they're serving the least of these, um, 
then it was worth it. Any re negative reaction that came as a result of that um, was worth it. And so I posted it and um, I was surprised. Many people uh, thanked me for writing it. Um, I, didn't, I didn't expect that. So, so let me speak to your surprise. I think people, individuals, are genu generally and genuinely decent. Yeah. They're, however, easily corrupted and co-opted into mob behavior if the systems and the evolution of the narrative is allowed to take hold. And so when you break people away from the mob mindset, you, you generally find that everyone has the same kind of aspirations. They can understand things at a personal level, but all you have to do is put a label on people as a group and you see a different kind of behavior because group mentality is not always positive or productive. So I'm glad that that's the experience you had after putting it out there, because I think there are people out there that are willing to be a part of the solution, but it's hard to find the way in all the noise that's out there. Um, yes. you, you concluded your piece with the words, faith without works is dead. My fervent hope is that my brothers and sisters will do more than send thoughts and prayers and seek more than hollow victories that do nothing for the least of these. You, you lead a highly respected, very visible, charitable trust. And I know you're not a social commentator, even though you might actually be. Um, <laughs> but with your published piece, uh, you opened the door, and I'd like to give you the opportunity to unpack your statement further, the issue around faith without work being dead. Uh, without works uh, is dead. Um, so just unpack that further and offer any thoughts you have for this period in American history where we find ourselves, because there's a lot going on on so many fronts, and I'm not trying to entice you into a political discussion, but just we're in a certain time in this country. We are. And when I wrote this um, piece, it was very emotional for me. Um, for many reasons and, and because of the time that we're in and particularly I saw the polls tightening and um, and I, I couldn't believe, I couldn't understand why so many were consciously choosing hate over unity or at least turning their heads. Um, and I know a large uh, voting block are evangelical Christians and who justify their vote because they say they're pro-life. And then that, you know, absolves them of completely ignoring the rest of the political agenda that truly flies in the face of what the core tenets of our faith are. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought about the least of these um, because in my favorite book, you know, <laughs> it said that, um, you know, Jesus said, when, you're, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. When I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. When I was in prison, when I didn't have a home, you didn't look after me. And so what you didn't do for them, you didn't do for me. Mm -hmm. And what you didn't do for the least of these, 
you didn't do for me. And so that's what I thought of. And I'm thinking, knowing that, how, how is it possible then that you can see 20 babies gunned down at their school and just say, oh, my thoughts and prayers are with you mm-hmm. and not do anything. When you know people are hungry, suffering, in all the ways that we know that people suffer um, are discriminated against because, just because of the color of their skin. In the richest nation in the world that has the means to fix these things, but instead, you know, there are those who choose to just laser focus on this one issue mm-hmm. that's really not any of their business, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's between you and God. Yes. You know? And so what is that? You know, that's not faith. Is that, you know, saying you believe and then doing nothing is not faith. That's what I meant by faith without works is dead. You, you've described a lot of things in here that makes me wonder from your vantage point um, what you think we're living through. So is this just an uncanny period of social candor about our country and who we are? Or is this some something very different? Is this period different from other periods? Are we experiencing a new, darker, less optimistic phase in life in this country? I, I don't think that this is a, an uncanny phase. Um, I think that this is in keeping with um, what's happened throughout history um, in our society, the inflection points. Um, they're painful. Um, but we survive them and we move forward. And I think every time, if you think of the history of our country, every time um, we get closer and closer to judge, you know, to justice. And um, it makes me think of Ron Heifetz's book, Adaptive Leadership. And he talks about different ways that people respond to change. You know, there's a question now of, you know, people are actually talking about white supremacy. Um, white dominant culture. And, you know, and that means, you know, by moving towards racial equity, there are some who are going to have to give something up. And that's their privilege. Um, And so that's what we see, you know, flexing here is that response to that change. And um, in his book, he talks about, you know, how people will avoid work, you know, just hoping it will go away. So they just don't even think about it and just passively just resist the change. Um, There are some who say, well, I have too many other things going on. You know, I can't focus on that. It's not a priority. And and that's their excuse. There are um, people who espouse to be all in, you know, and yes, I'm in with you and I believe in the mission, I believe in the direction, and then they don't do anything um, or silently work against. And then, there, there is speaking the unspeakable. And I think that's where we are. It's what we say out loud compared to what we actually say in our heads. And, and depending on who's in the room, who's around, dictates that. And you talked about it earlier, Egbert, when you talked about the, the mob mentality, um, right? And how people, they might be thinking it, but they're not going to say it, right? Because they're going to go along with the group. And he, he said, Heifetz says in his book that, that speaking the unspeakable is absolutely essential 
in moving forward. It's absolutely essential, no matter how ugly and uncomfortable it is, that hearing and considering the full range of people's perspectives and opinions, that's what moves us to adaptive solutions. Okay. And if we don't do that, we're gonna once again miss it. And so right now, the country is speaking the unspeakable mm -hmm. across the spectrum. <laughs> you know, and, we, and all of us have our mouths open. <laughs> but it, that's what's going to get us to healing. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's particularly dark. Right. I think that that brings us into the light. I do. I would say you're officially classifiable as an optimist. And that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I am. <laughs> So, Susan, um, great having you on the program. Really appreciate your remarks. Um, I see both the passion and the commitment inside of your words. And so this was a joy for me. I hope it was for the audience. I'm sure it would. It will be. On behalf of the people and families, um, the Melville Trust helps, supports, etc. I just want to thank you for your work and the work of the Trust. Thank you very much. Thank you. Create the Village is produced by Rick White. Directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group, 